Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Major Stephen Coughlin. Mr. Coughlin is an attorney, decorated intelligence officer, and noted specialist on Islamic law, ideology, and related strategic information programs. Stephen is often cited as the Pentagon's leading expert on Islamic law and how it relates to national security, and has served at the Pentagon's National Military Joint Intelligence Center, the National Security Council's Interagency Perception Management Threat Panel, it's a mouthful, and the intelligence staff of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mr. Coughlin is the author of a new book that I believe is vital, if not the most important book of the year, maybe the most important book of the decade, Catastrophic Failure, Blindfolding America in the Face of Jihad. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Stephen, you didn't intend to become an expert on Islamic law, and I imagine you probably never thought that your career would be negatively impacted, potentially, by pursuing it. Explain how this career path organically unfolded, because I think it's important background before we jump into the nitty-gritty of catastrophic failure. Well, I would say I was a private sector person with a uh, law degree working in the international publishing arena. I tell people today, I used to have a corner office in Bethesda. And when I went did foreign travel, it was at nice, nice hotels. We had unlimited uh, menus and stuff like that. Uh, I was a reserve officer, and 9-11 uh, happened. I got mobilized, uh, was assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, and the intelligence director and put on targeting. And targeting is an extremely elite, very classified area of intelligence where you take that fi that final element of intelligence and tie it to a target, whether it's a bomb, whether it's a bullet, or whether it's an information campaign. And so uh, I was uh, kind of at the the tip of the tip of the spear at the strategic level during most of the kinetic activities in the war on terror. So let's delve into the threat doctrine that you elucidate in this book. What are, for the purposes of national security and, and for our audience, what are jihad, dawah, and ummah? Why are they intrinsically related, and why should the average American care? Well, since the DHS Secretary Chertoff said we couldn't use any of those words in analysis in 2008 uh, because it would be unfair to talk about Islam, they became terms that we couldn't use to analyze the threat, despite the fact that the threat used those words to define their strategy. Of course, what, what Uma is, is it refers to the Muslim community. What Dawa is, is it's the, it, it is euphemistically translated as uh, Islamic um, uh, proselytizing. And, but really what it is, it's the preparation stage, especially as it's defined by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, the nonviolent pre-operational phase, which is the key phase in, in jihad. And of course, Jihad is, uh, is Islamic warfare, and, and in this regard, it's not just the killing action, it's the actions in support of the killing action. You could say that the what we have lost, are, what America has forgotten, is that war follow, is in every spectrum, and our national leaders only think of war as battles fought somewhere on the ground in, with the military, and of course, as we look at uh, the people we're up against, they understand war is political, they understand it's spiritual, they understand it's informational, and they understand it's also fighting. Um, however, they believe that the main effort is in the preparation stage. That's why almost every major group we have uses a Sora verse 860 against them, make ready your strength to the utmost, that's the logo of the Brotherhood, uh, because it's in this phase of operation that they, they seek to demoralize and blind somebody so when the kinetic action comes, it's actually not that much of a 
military effort because the, uh, the target population will collapse. Which interestingly kind of parallels the strategies of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, strategic subversion, disinformation, and the like. But here there's a religious imperative where you didn't have that in the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And, and you know what? It's not lost on me that you know, I, was, uh, I, went to, I was a Russian analyst, spoke Russian fluently, and it's not lost on me. If you go all the way back to Napoleon, he was defeated by the Russians. And the Russians used tactics that they learned from Islamic war fighting that they fought every year. That they fought a battle, the bloodiest battle Napoleon fought, they gave ground. They fought another battle, it was the bloodiest battle. Then that became the bloodiest battle Napoleon fought. They gave ground, let them take Moscow, and then they turned into a partisan group. That sounds exactly like what Saddam Hussein tried to do to us. So it was that form of warfare. And I bring this up with the Soviet Union because I think they were very aware of these, these type of tactics. Some people will argue that Islam learned the, the, the Al Qaeda Brotherhood learned this from from the Soviets. You could make an argument, and I'm not making it hard. It's just worth pondering that the Soviets learned it from them, and because uh, it, it goes to the point that everything you see going on right now with the Brotherhood, I could show you happened in the seventh, the eighth, the ninth century. And of course, with ISIS, it's probably most visibly illustrated to the world, which which actually probably hurts their movement. Would you agree with that statement? Because it shows in very stark terms what they actually believe based upon their religious principles. What, you, what hurts them? Well, there's sort of the, and we'll get to the topic, but the civilization jihad that the Muslim Brotherhood talks about is much more stealth. It understands how the West views the world and uses our liberties and our biases against us. Whereas ISIS chopping people's heads off is damaging probably to a PR campaign where they're trying to take advantage of Western freedoms and beliefs. Well, I think you're right from, the, from our perspective. That's true. I mean, going back to Dawah and Jihad, when you read books written by Muslims for Muslims, like you get to a seventh grade school book, there are three duties of Islam. Um, knowing the good and forbidding the bad. That comes from a quote from the Quran. Dawah and Jihad. And the reason I point this out is Dawah and Jihad are, are linked together. What people like Spencer call stealth jihad is actually dawah. And so here in the West, the primary mission is dawah. And remember, for a Muslim entity, especially one in the Middle East, ISIS, the fact that they're hard kinetic and imposing that issue, just imposing a harsh concept of jihad, only goes to the fact that they're in the homeland and they feel they can take that level of action, whereas here would be a discrete action. So what you're really seeing is different phases in different land masses because at a certain point, they're actually coherently a whole. Now, of course, uh, the Brotherhood does not care for ISIS, and ISIS doesn't like um, the Brotherhood, and ISIS thinks that their the mothership Al-Qaeda is just a little bit too, too, you know, it's the younger generation that wants to fight, and the older guys want to, want to be a little more reserved. But the difference between them vis-a-vis -vis us is enormous. You know, the difference between themselves is minuscule compared to the difference between them and us. It's a difference in tactics, not so much ideology. Timing and tactics. One other topic um, in, or one other principle in Islam that you talk about at great length in the book that is always mentioned when people talk about jihadists openly and honestly is the idea of abrogation. Taqiyah is another thing which you argue in the book is perhaps overplayed in terms of discussing taqiyah being strategic lying in effect uh, to advance religious causes. But abrogation is something that you argue transcends and pervades 
basically all jihadist ideology and pervades the religion more broadly. So talk about what abrogation is and its significance. Uh, Yes, abrogation is a concept that the groups like the Brotherhood in America insist doesn't exist and become very energized when people raise it. And what that is, is uh, the Quran, when you look at it, is not compiled chronologically. It's compiled by the largest book, Surah, to the smallest book, or Surah. And, and so there, the, the, so Surah 2, after Surah 1, which is just the Bismillah, Surah 2 is the largest chapter or book. The smallest one is 114. But if you arrange them chronologically, you will find a much, clear, a much more clear sequence of events. And what you have is this uh, doctrine in Islam that basically says that the things that were revealed later to Muhammad during the period of Revelation control or overrule things that were said earlier. So that the later verses abrogate the previous uh, verses. Now what is very important here is that there doesn't seem to be much dispute in Islamic law about the reality of abrogation. Not the least of which is there are at least three different verses of the Quran that make this point explicit where Allah reveals that he has revealed his message in stages. But the problem is if you understand what abrogation is and then you know that the Muslim Brotherhood pegs their operations today and Al-Qaeda pegs their operations today on that understanding of abrogation, what I call the milestones process, because Syed Qutb, a, a, a senior uh, Muslim Brotherhood thinker in the 1960s, wrote a book called The Milestones that laid out the operational me- mechanism by which you come to understand how to sync the initial writing of the Quran to today's reality. Uh, I think that if you put that, uh, if you understand that, then you can see where they're at. You can template who they are and what their objectives are and where they believe they are, what phase of operation they're in. And of course, that is something they seriously do not want. If I could just follow up, I, I, would, argue, I, I, would, I, I would say that Takiyah that I think is overplayed is that it's a tactical, you know, ta- is a defensive tactical strategy in, in Islam that comes from the Shia, in that they you, you could lie on the moment to conceal who you are. But I also make the point that in pure Islamic law, minus Takiyah, there is the duty to lie. And the duty to lie, uh, if, if it furthers uh, the goals of Islam, such that not lying in certain situations puts you in violation of the law, Islamic law. So we've talked about the ideological basis for how jihadists fight. What is the civilization jihadist process that you lay out in the book? Well, you know, it's funny that the more I you, you look at al-Qaeda abroad and you, you realize that we're winning all the battles over there. We're, we don't have a problem with the, the tactical engagements. Most of our troops have been killed by landmines or 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 snipers, or, or, or secondary activities. Or suicidal roles of engagement. Or, or, or suicidal roles of engagement, absolutely. Um, you find that where there are engagements, we clean their clock. So the question becomes, we're not failing at the, op- at the tactical and the tactical operation end of the game. We're failing somewhere and failing to convert those s- tactical successes to our strategic uh, uh, victory. And that's where your, your eyes start to move from what's going on in Afghanistan or Iraq to what's going on here in America. And you start to realize that a group called the Muslim Brotherhood has, has worked themselves into areas of influence in the media, on college campuses, and most importantly, international security community to be that moderate voice that gives them a, a moderate Muslim voice that, that allows us to somehow play in that sphere. Now, the very same national leaders Okay, 
It was the FBI that raided El Barassi's home in 2004 and found the Muslim Brotherhood archives that showed what their operational plan was. It was the Justice Department that entered those documents into evidence in a Holy Land Foundation case identifying ISNA, CARE, because CARE would back then came out of the Islamic Association for Palestine, or the Fee Council of North America, or the IIIT. Those documents identified them as the Muslim Brotherhood. It identified them as being here to offer a civilizational alternative, meaning to overthrow the current system, and to say that it was based on civilization jihad that called for the total destruction of the West. So we find ourselves in a situation where we have actually seen that at the one time while the FBI and the Justice Department are prosecuting the, the very groups that are engaged in the subversive activity that their own documents confirm, other branches of those same offices are working with those same groups on cultural and community outreach. And then what happens is they wonder why, I mean, there's a series of reasons why, and one of the reasons why they can't get, you know, uh, uh, nonviolent Muslims in the Muslim community in America to come forward is because they happen to know that the people that the senior leaders in our law enforcement rely on for that information are the very people who um, would cause, them, cause their lives to be very much disrupted in, in this country. And that showed itself, of course, in the recent Countering Violent Extremism CVE Summit, where the model programs that the government used to show the effectiveness of CVE, the, the euphemism that we use for countering terrorism or countering jihadism, if we're even doing it, was showed Boston, for example, where the leaders in Boston are tied to the very mosque or Islamic center there from which the Sarnayev brothers were spawned. Well, you know, you raise a very prickly issue, especially for me, because, you know, there's nothing in the CVE that talks about countering terrorism. We have in our statutes counter-terrorism counter laws and combating terrorism laws. And I argue that when we do CVE, countering violent extremism, we are doing exactly not combating terrorism. In fact, the one has kind of insinuated itself into replace the other. So, you know, if you go take a stack of Time magazines over the last year, look for the articles on violent extremism, you'll find that no matter how much the first picture in the first paragraph is about bin Laden, it almost always ends with somebody wanting to defend the Constitution. Okay, and, and then you start to realize that when they were having the countering violent extremism workshops at DHS to set this up in 2010 and bringing in experts, that they had, were heavily populated by people from the Muslim Brotherhood. So that the Muslim Brotherhood has their fingers on the actual doctrine of countering violent extremism. So I would ask you, who have we fought so far that ever said, I'm a violent extremist fighting the cause of violently extreme ideas? And the answer would be nobody. And then you start taking a look at how many people we've actually been able to detain or slow down based on an idea, and the answer is nobody. And so I would argue that so long as we have DHS doing CVE, they're not doing what their their um, their implementation right to exist and statute says they're supposed to be doing and that's not an accident so I take a very I'm one of those people who takes a very hostile view of violent extremism because whereas combating terrorism is in furtherance of supporting defending the Constitution uh, violent extremism is about supporting the postmodern narrative that because there are no facts there is no truth and anybody who stands up for what they believe is extreme and anybody who will fight for it is a violent extremist that would mean, by definition, that any veteran returning from war is a violent extremist. And then you realize 
the DHS is putting out documents to say exactly that. Does that now make, I'll bet you that comes to a new understanding of it. Well, and to take it even one step further, is the notion of countering terrorism or fighting terrorism in itself kind of subversive of what the Constitution calls for, not because we shouldn't be fighting terrorists, but because terror is a tactic. Jihadism or jihadists are the actual enemy. So when we have a war on terror, we didn't have a war on the Blitzkrieg, and we didn't have a war on kamikaze pilots. So is the, is the notion of a war on terror in and of itself sort of subverting what we're actually aiming at, or is it just a politically correct way of pushing aside who the actual enemy is? Well, I, I think it's right. Let's, let's put it like this. If you were to go to the War of 1812, okay, and you were to ask the soldiers fighting the war, what is the war? Well, the war is fighting that phalanx of British officers in their grape shop right in front of me. And it would be perfectly appropriate to define the war in their mind in terms of the tactics that's going to come straight at them kinetically. So when you basically then turn it over and say we're fighting the war on terror, what you're seeing on top of what you're, the result is what you're saying. But what you're seeing is in the interest of not defining the actual state of the state of the threat because it's politically incorrect, okay, you're then making a strategic decision to define the nature of the threat in strictly tactical terms. So then you, you not only have failed to properly identify the threat strategically, you have no ability to or orient strategic assets to combat that. So the whole strategy is just a whole is is extreme tactics bootstrapped up to the strategic level where there can be no resolution. So yes, I think it's exactly right. And, and you know, I think it's not it's I don't get worked around the axle like some people do in the naming of the war. I agree with people who say it's not the war on terror. And I, I mean, I completely agree with it for exactly the reason I said, and because it, it, it creates a misdefinition of the enemy. And what you misdefine, if you misdefine a target, you will miss the target. Okay? And so I absolutely agree. There's another level of which I kind of think, uh, you know, as an operator, when you're, you know, I'm not talking about the pundits, I'm talking about when you're inside the Pentagon, and you can get an hour-long discussions about what the, what the, what we should name the war. It's like, your job isn't to name the war, your job is to identify the enemy and shoot him. So let somebody else define it, you know, and so there's a part of which I'll say, give me a name, that's what I'm going to call it, we'll move on. But at the same time, that that's for the, the people like me who are, you know, in the day-to-day -day business, and they wanted people to get, for them, that was a distraction. At the level you're talking about, where you have to bring this message to the population, the decision to name a war at the strategic level in tactical terms is a is a is a indicator that you do not have the resolve to actually fight the war. Does that make sense? Yep. It is itself a failure of resolve, and the other side knows you will blink at at, at the point of attack. So since you talk about blinking at the point of attack, and you also talk as an operator with experience being in these conversations with high-level national security officials in our national security establishment, you make the case in the book that in their professional duties, effectively our national security establishment has been derelict because of the way that we have failed to identify our enemies and failed to confront them without rules of engagement that are absurd and all the litany of other issues. Speak a little bit to that, the dereliction of professional duty. Well, I, I think my great frustration is, is you get to a certain point, you know, going back to being brought onto the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the targeting division, I'm a reserve officer. I mean, I'm a professional attorney, a member of the bar. I had all my, all my credentials to be the officer at the level I was at. I was even working on a master's degree 
at the National Joint Military Intelligence College on terrorism, as a matter of fact. But when you get there and you realize these are the pros been doing it for a career, you're coming there thinking, I will never catch up to these people. So I better, you know, do my job and go home and read a book on terrorism. And I, I started reading some of the stuff at Barnes & Noble that everybody else was reading. I said, this is garbage. And then I started going and going to some other place. I said, this, this is not it. And I finally went to a, uh, a mosque-associated bookstore, associated with the Darl Hidra Mosque. It's the Holoko bookstore. And I bought some books. And I thought, oh, this was a mistake because every one of the books I bought here are all talking about terrorism. At the time, I was working on the idea that there's this, there's this massive fight inside Islam at the doctrinal level that's raging. And it took me a while and a couple thousand dollars worth of, worth of this books written by Muslims, for Muslims, sold inside Islamic streams of commerce to realize, no, I've read enough of this to realize that that's what it is. And I started to realize that our cultural experts who are on our side to help defeat it, whenever we would raise a question, their answer was, well, that's not my Islam. But whenever we talked to Brotherhood people when they were you know, being interrogated, or whenever we talked to Al-Qaeda when we read their stuff, they're quoting the people I read in those books. And I could look it up and say, yep, that's what they said. And I could go into what are called tafsirs, would explain what that quote means, and said, that's what it means. And that was written 800 years ago. That was written 900 years ago. That was written 400 years ago. This was written in Iraq, today what is today Iraq. This was written in Cordova, what is today Spain. It didn't seem to matter what century, what school of Sunni law it was, if they all said the same thing. And then I realized there may be great controversy inside the Muslim community about the willingness to fight jihad, but there's no question that when the Brotherhood talks about this, that, that is what it says. And, and, or when Al-Qaeda, you know, adjusting for the fact that they're Wahhabists, that, that as a practical matter, that is what it, they're doing what it says. And they can fall back on clear histories you know, that are, they don't have to torture. And I started to realize the people who are helping us were marooning us in narratives. And increasingly those narratives were where we brought all elements of national power to bear and in bringing them to bear on there, we were fighting a mirage. And all the time we have Al-Qaeda rolling us up. We have the Brotherhood here rolling us up. And I used to joke that I think that the, one of the biggest struggles the Brotherhood in D.C. had was driving out of the parking lot of the National Security Agencies or the FBI or the uh, DHS, knowing that they couldn't start laughing until they cleared the parking lot cameras. I mean, this is not even close. There, there's no, it, it's, it's staggering. So we bring this back to your question on, on what do our national security orders, uh, leaders have a duty to? Well, I, I kind of identify there's two duties. If they're professionals, and they are, you know, as a lawyer, you know that there's malpractice. Malpractice is something you bring against professionals when they fail a professional standard, okay? The professional standard you've heard of when you watch TV shows is for the average person, there's no reason why someone would know something. But for you, the professional, you either knew or should have known what was the object of your profession. So you can't argue a lack of knowledge because you had a duty to know. And it turns out, like for lawyers, for example, um, professional uh, legal ethics for lawyers, which have the force of law for a lawyer, you will have a, the Supreme Court of a state, or one of its created, uh, bring those ethics to bear against you with the force of law. So you, I don't want to make it out like this ethereal uh, legal ethics. Rule 1.1 of the model rules of legal ethics is you have a duty to be competent. 
And the first rule of competency is the duty to know. Well, so I basically started realizing that every time I was up against these professionals, and the higher up you went, the more locked in this became. Okay. So in other words, at the higher levels, they are more unaware or they intentionally, will, willfully blind towards the threat. Willfully blind, and willfully blind, but also because they become so enmeshed in the narrative, they don't, they lose the ability to even understand that they don't even know what they're talking about because they're following these narratives. So there's the duty to be competent, and, the, and as I make the malpractice argument, because it's a lot easier to make that. A lot of people on Capitol Hill who are elected were either lawyers or businessmen or doctors who knew what due diligence was and knew what they had to do to stay out of court as professionals. And if you can convince them of this argument, that bootstraps to other things. But there's the other duty. The other duty for people in the national security community is a duty to support and defend the Constitution. And in that duty, it makes it clear. I argue that the Constitution wasn't written to write some romantic language about swearing to the Constitution because it doesn't mean anything. It's swearing to support and defend the Constitution because it's telling you that at the end of the day, you exist to defend that. And anything that gets in the way of that is subversion. Now, I don't mean that in the harsh sense that I mean in like, go prosecute somebody. But you never take your eyes off the ball. So here's the point I get to. For those who violate their duty to be competent as professionals, why shouldn't it be understood to be their violation of their duty to support and defend? When you get to the point where you have these people chasing after political science or anthropological narratives that then become models that exist almost solely to divert people's attentions away from the facts on the ground, to, to, to create the ability that you could call it a war on terror because it's too politically incorrect to say it's Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda exists to implement Islamic law and to reestablish the caliphate because that would cause our allies to be, un, you know, not, not, not like it. Never asking, well, if they don't like it, why don't they stop Al-Qaeda, you see? That becomes the key question. That, you know, at a certain point, I'm not talking about doing some hard, you know, thing. You, you reintroduce these ideas with the idea of re-implementing this concept, you know. You did take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And I know that today's narrative says that that makes you a violent extremist. <laughs> but why then are you in a government position where you're sworn to do that and you are willfully not doing that? Because, you know, at a certain point, you have to understand that political correctness isn't something that exists in the air. It's the enforcement mechanism that once violent extremism for the specific purpose of displacing the constitutional mandate, in my opinion. Even worse than failing to support and defend the Constitution is actually helping enforce principles that are antithetical to the Constitution. So to that end, you talk about in Catastrophic Failure the OIC, and the 24-25 rule, and free speech. Tie those dots together for us. I'll start with the 24-25 rule, because um, I think that lawyers would understand what a rule like this is. I think professionals would understand what this is, which is, and, and it's extremely important. There is something, there is something called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which started off as the Organization of Islamic Conference, and it represents the Arab world at the head of state level. 57 states. 56, 56 states in the Palestinian Authority. I have some Jewish friends who get really mad. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> when I, when I, 
they represent it at the executive level, and they passed something called the Cairo Declaration on Human Rights and Islam in 1990 that they served as a legal instrument to the United Nations in 1993, I believe. And in it, they say that when the Islamic world says human rights, they mean, and they mean nothing but Sharia law. So Article 24 of the Cairo Declaration says, when you talk about human rights, we mean Sharia law. And Article 25 says, when we talk about human rights, we mean nothing but Sharia law. So I call it the Article 24-25 rule, which is to say this, that when you're analyzing the Muslim Brotherhood, an OIC member state, or Al-Qaeda, what they say means only what Islamic law has it mean, and nothing else. So there's a double meaning to everything, basically, that comes out. If you say we're against terrorism and we're a care, let's say, does care not actually mean that they're against terrorism, or it means they're against terrorism in the Islamic Sharia sense? Well, I think it's a very good distinction you're making because at the end of the day, if I were a lawyer, I could defend care on everything they say and basically point out to the point that you think they're lying is because you have not done your due diligence and you're in violation of the professional codes because it happens that a couple years later, the OIC served a, a, a document to the, OI, uh, to the UN called, called the OIC Convention on Combating Terrorism where they say they condemn all forms of terrorism condemned by Sharia. And they say it twice at the very beginning of the document. So there's no question about it. Well, I think we have to understand that in no instance will Islam ever declare jihad terrorism. So you will find when you read a lot of uh, Islamic sources on terrorism, in there enough so that they're, I don't want to make it out like they're hiding this because they, pub, they publish these documents in English. That, that we don't pick it up is not because they're concealing it. It's that they know we're too lazy to read it read it like we would read a professional document. Well, to put a fine point on what terror means they know, under they're Sharia, they're not well, lying. What, what, is, what does that mean? Because I don't know that our audience knows what the classical definition of terror is under Sharia law. Well, I would say that the definition of terrorism under Sharia law is to kill a Muslim without right. This is exactly what Major Hassan was claiming. And he, 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 he briefed uh, the uh, doctors at uh, our, uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Facility. He briefed at the Pentagon. He did this over 20 times, explaining why he would have to become a declared jihadi if he was deployed to the uh, to the Islamic part of the world, what the military calls the AOR. And why did he do that? Because there are there are clear statements in the Quran that he quoted in his briefing to our military that said that if he gets to in a situation where he has to kill a Muslim without right, that that cannot be reconciled. And so if you were to kill a Muslim and he is not guilty of murder, if he's not guilty of adultery, and he's not guilty of apostasy, then you have killed a Muslim without right. And so that is what constitutes terrorism or bringing tumult and oppression to the land. Now, you brought up something a couple minutes ago that will fold into here about there's a double meaning to things. But they're not hiding the double meaning. They're depending on the fact that we'll just never read their book. It's hiding in clear sight. Because it's hiding in clear sight. But it's also this, that that would be the definition of those terms from a Muslim context. They're true to their own selves about this. I don't really fault them in the fact that they failed to communicate this. They just bank on the fact that our senior leaders are too... Um, let me think of how to say this. They're too unwilling to do what their duty requires them to do. 
And part of a duty for professionals isn't just to do the work, it's to know what you're doing and to understand it. And, uh, and in that instance, they can clearly make statements like Major Hassan did to those military officers that he was there to declare that he's going to kill them and know that they would not know what he was talking about, knowing that Brotherhood affiliates all over would know exactly what he was saying. So that's where you get that parallel language. But it's because it's, you know, when we say, this is why I say Taki is sometimes overplayed, there is that, and there is lying at the critical point. But most of the time, they're banking on us not rising to the game. They know, they made an assessment when the stuff, this stuff started to rule that our senior national leader, our national military, national security leadership was a self-licking ice cream cone. You talk largely in the book about Sunni Islam, but I'm struck when I was reading it and when we think about, in sum, all of these different principles, the theopolitical ideology of Islam that has been imbibed by the Muslim Brotherhood and all the offshoot groups. Right now, we're in the middle of negotiations, uh, what I would call appeasement negotiations, with Iran. Iran, you don't talk about Shia Islam all that much in the book, but I was struck by the fact that you talk about the Treaty of Hudabiya or Hudabaya, which I'll allow you to explain what that was. But when thinking about Iran and whatever deal that we're going to make with quote unquote sunset clauses regarding nuclear development, do you see a tie in between that treaty and what we're negotiating with Iran today? Um, well, there's two levels in which I'd answer that. The Treaty of Hudabiya was, was um, I, I, I'm not thinking I'm pronouncing that with justice, I have to confess. Uh, I usually have to look at the word and pronounce it three times before I get <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, is uh, a treaty that Muhammad made that was for a 10-year period. And the truth of the matter is, I think the term that better translates is truce, because at a technical level, Islam does not recognize treaties. Okay, they recognize truces for a 10-year period. It's really important to point out, actually, when they say a 10-year period, that's kind of the point where they usually settle on. But you can get some schools of law, law to make the point that truces are always temporary. And they always have to be understood to be temporary. You know, I don't know how far I want to go into that, except to point out that they did the 10-year truce, and then they renewed a truce. And when they realized that the population they made a truce with, I think it was the Meccan population, right? Uh, is they realized that they had the combat power to beat them, they just abrogated the treaty. And you will find that um, uh, when uh, Yasser Arafat was still alive, he would say the stuff in English, and he could get these questions from the Palestinians, challenging on it, in Arabic he would say, Hudabiya, Hudabiya. And he was reminding them what he was saying, and they have no intention of keeping this. I, I, think when you, I don't think we have to really torture Shia Islam to say this carries over a pretty, pretty straight line. But, you know, I think that, I mean, I'm, and I, we can show how that works with these trees, but at a certain point, I think we just have to call it. And they have assessed, the Russians have assessed, the Chinese have assessed, our allies assess, that our national security leadership are plainly stupid. Okay? And they want to be. They are, they are they're the only ones eating their own narratives. You know, they're, all, they're, they're eating their, what's the phrase? I messed up that phrase. They're drinking their own Kool-Aid. And, and they're, they're, they're at one level shocked that now nobody's even buying. Democrats aren't buying that. It's embarrassing. The Iranians, this is not some magic trick of Shia Islam. This is that they have properly assessed 
that they can get up in these treaties and say, knowing it's going to be reported, that they have really no intention of following through on this stuff. And this is crazy. Making these people look silly. And then betting that half our media is still going to come to the aid of these people. And betting right. But this is so, so overwhelming that they can't keep it up. And, and, and that, you know, I would like to ascribe this to some trick of Islam. But at a certain point, I would really say this is the postmodern narrative, the cultural Marxist narrative, the multicultural narrative that is taking its bite. If you accept that narrative at the beginning, you will be reduced to, to incomprehension in your own mind. So I honestly think that someone like Harry has no concept. He will be convinced that everybody else doesn't understand the way he understands. Not because of his own biases and prejudices as a postmodern Westerner, well, in effect. Absolutely. I mean, And he's, by the way, also, let's not forget that Kerry was spewing the disinformation of the B Vietnamese going back to the 70s. So this is about 40 plus years of John Kerry being like and, this. And I want to trigger something as just a little bliff on the side before I ask your question. You get to a certain point talking about the fail the, our inability to grasp the war on terror. You only get so far before you realize that you can't talk about it without talking about the left-wing narrative. And you see, I think in the 1980s, the Brotherhood gambled, the OIC gambled, that the U.S. was going to be brought down by this narrative. I'm going to give you a, 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 an example. Yes, the word Islamophobia existed before the 1980s, but it was the triple IT that created that word in Northern Virginia that the OIC adopted and it's now become its brand. What is Islamophobia and why did they create that word? Islamophobia is really a term that masked Islamic slander law, which is nothing like Western concepts of slander. And they knew that they could get the left to fight that battle if they created the word Islamophobia and put it in the racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia. And they could get them to do the heavy lifting and defending them because they knew that these people are... are um, limbic brain response, you know, they will axiomatically defend that and they'll have alliances with them just to do that. But you can only go so far in this discussion before you realize that the Brotherhood, for example, properly assessed that these people were to bring us down. And it, and, and it may be the people who believe in this country have gotten so lazy in what those principles were that they didn't think they needed defended. And here we are. So for a listener at this point, I mean, effectively, what we've stated is that the whole national security establishment is compromised. And so what are going to be the implications of this over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I'm one of those people who think you cannot even talk about five years from now because we don't know what's going to happen one year from now. I just think that it's very clear that things are building. And things are building that we have blinded our own intelligence to, but that people can clearly sense and people can clearly articulate that something's building. And I think at a point, um, I think we have to recognize, even if we can't always, you know, when I was learning Russian at the Defense Intelligence Agency back in the early 80s, you know, the joke used to be, because we had native, you know, emigre Russians who would teach us, so we spoke Russian, and they said, you know, that Vestia means uh, news and Pravda means truth, and the joke was, in the truth there is no news, and in the news there is no truth. And I tell people, aren't we there here today with what we're being told is news? But the other part of it was, we would say to the professor, 
the, the, the Russian instructors, and I said, you know, if the average Russian knows everything they're being told is propaganda, why don't they rise up? And he said, because the propaganda is so complete that even though the people know they're being lied to, they can't really put their finger on what it is that is the lie anymore. They can't get there. And I see today that type of blanket coming down on us in our, our world today. And what really made me aware of that is when I was doing strategic information stuff, when we had to know what was going on, we had TVs all over the room. We were watching Al Manar, we were watching Al Jazeera, we were watching Middle Eastern Press, BBC, CNN World, and everything. And you would realize that whether it was the left wing MSNBC or the Fair and Balanced Fox, the only thing they reported about the war as it was going on was what people in New York wanted to be the top of the fold for the talking points inside Washington. That at all times, most of the time, they're reporting on the war where they had nothing to do with what was going on over there. So that if you talk to veterans coming back, they can't even talk to an American who was never there about what went on because their points of reference have no basis in what happened. And so I think that you know, we have created a situation where 24-hour news is the, is the commoditizing, commoditizing of news to turn it into a, a narrative that feeds a information loop that generates revenue. And Fox wins because they have a better revenue model. Fox has made it clear they would change their storytelling to maximize their return. And they have said that many times. And I only point this out because when you turn news into narrative to generate revenue, it's entertainment. And what we have is a population that we want to vote for the people doing the fair and balanced over the people at MSNBC, but at a certain point you can sit down with that left-wing guy you work with in the Pentagon and you realize they don't know what they're talking about. And he can go to his buddies on the college campus talking to his left-wing friends. I can go to some conservatives. I can't talk to them. I can't even talk to them about what's going on. And that's when you realize, you know, something has happened here. You know, something has happened. You know, if the other side, Ivan Zawari said, 85% of this war will be won in the newsrooms. But we need to understand that when we see narratives coming out as news, that in the interest of, you know, maximizing return on investment on, 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 on the revenue model, that they're going to milk something. Did you ever notice that when a disaster happens, they pretty much get the leading what really happened, then in the second day they get the legitimate oppositional view, but they program 10 days. So 80% of the reporting are on these knuckleheads or these people who have no, no business being on the news, but they take up as much time as the real event. So the average person watching is thinking they're all on the same level, have the same level of knowledge. I know I'm babbling here. Yeah. It, it, this goes to the issue of that has to be interrupted. And incidentally, and you probably know this better than I do, but the, the Soviet Union dedicated a higher percentage of their resources to the information war than to normal spying activities. It's something to remember when you talk about that Oswahiri comment. So last question I'll ask is, short of reversing... Can I, can I stop you there? Yeah, second? sure. You know, Pat Poole wrote an article, the, the greatest spy scandal you never heard of. You had a leading member of the American Muslim Brotherhood who was a direct report to the, and he was a Pakistani, a direct report to the Pakistani ISI doing influence operations for 20 years on Capitol Hill. He was, he, was, uh, he was put in jail about three or four years ago, two or three years ago, and now he's out. And now he's still in the country, an ISI operative on Capitol Hill. And you know what? Why, don't I, why doesn't anybody talk about that? I'm sorry, you had that last question. 
short of reversing overnight a hundred years of progressive dominance of academia, the media, all of our cultural institutions, which have created this problem that we face long today. March to the, the long march, Gramsci. Yeah. So short of reversing all that overnight, the Constitution is not a suicide pack. So what can we do to start to counter the jihadist threat in this country? Well, you know, I was pushing very hard this book written by a man named Joseph Piper called Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. And he basically pointed out 50 page, 50 page book, think about that, that um, it, when you come to abuse, you people who start by abusing language use it to ultimately abuse power. And he wrote that to explain how the Nazis took over, to explain to West Germans how the East Germans and the Soviets were doing it. But the entire 50 pages was based on what? The, the um, Plato's uh, dialogues to point out that we have been here before and we've been here in the ancient world. You know, some people will point out when you read the book of Maccabees that that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. So we know what this is. And I, I think the thing to look at is you pointed out something. They control all the cultural institutions. Well, in the information operations world, those are called lines of operation. And they, they are hitting on all of them. We have been kicked out of our own home. Okay, and, and, and are asking how it happened. So I think the thing to realize is the other side, especially on the issue having to do with uh, jihad and stuff like that, all the facts are on this side. Okay, Joseph Piper made the point of when you're in a world like that, you have to treat the truth like propaganda just to get it in. And then you have to build on that. When I point out to the people, the other side can wax and say whatever they want because the narrative allows them to lie. And it is the prevailing narrative. We only have the fact that we're right. We can prove that it's true so that when things fall apart, people will be looking for who was right and they will look at the people who were, were correct. And I, mean, I don't want to make it out like you, you wait for the, the house of cards to fall down, but you build so you can interrupt that. But you know what? We're at a point where the house of cards may fall down and it will be about people looking for alternatives, realizing like somebody hung over from a bad alcohol-induced drug trip, that the world just came around their ankles. And, and so I think the thing to do is to start combating it, and combating it in a way that you're smart, and that you always make sure that you state what you state based on stuff you can immediately prove. And not even stuff that you could prove if you had to, but you go in with what you got. And, and, and truth, the facts that can be shown to be true are, are your ammunition. And you start pushing on that. And you start calling out the line. You start drawing the line. The line will be the one where the people who are over there, what they think about will come over, will come over. But you draw the line. And you hold to the line. And you don't, when I make, I don't want to sound more, I don't, that's the term for that, as a hardliner. And I don't mean it in that instance. I'm saying, if you believe that this is something that's true, if you believe that the Constitution exists to govern this country, then you believe the people who play with that are not people on your side manipulating it. They're on the other side. Okay? Then at a certain point, there are things that you have to hold up that you're going to defend. The other side is militantly and brutally committed to the uh, belief in nothing, inducing nihilism in our country for the purpose of getting people to believe in nothing so they will believe in their world afterwards when they construct it. Of course, the Brotherhood believes that they'll just kill them and bring them to Islam. But both of them agree that they must destroy our current view of the world. And the fact that we have 
priests, ministers, and rabbis not even answering that call tells you that's why I was talking about Maccabees, where you had, you think about that. You had these hick priests who only came to Jerusalem during, during a part of the year. Okay, and they said, what the heck is going on with the high priest in Jerusalem? He's building a temple to the Greek gods. Well, can't we all just get along? I just think it's incredible. And I say, and what happened? Those people said, not only no, but no. Okay, I'm going on radio here. And they just said, we're not going to do this. And I just think it's about getting people to realize, like I was saying here, one of the messages you want to send to those you know, 20-something-year-old women who are saying, I have to do this because this is right. This in the, is in the war on right. women. And the war on women is to say, no, this is not normal. 99% of the history of the world, 99.99% of the history of the world, and 90% of the world today thinks what you're saying is completely weird. This is completely new. And the effectiveness of this campaign is such that they made you think that this was normal. Make sense? Makes sense. The name of the book is Catastrophic Failure, and we've been speaking with Major Stephen Coughlin. Retired. Retired. Stephen, thanks so much for speaking with us, and I'd urge everyone to check out Stephen's YouTube videos, which go into much greater depth on everything that we've discussed today. Yes. Thank you very much. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.